I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening to Where We Live's podcast on Connecticut Public Radio. And while I've got you, here's our promise. Great conversations and analysis are just part of what we do. WNPR covers the news that matters most with voices you can trust. But we need your support. Make your contribution at wmpr.org slash donate or 1-800-584-2788. Thank you. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lydia Brown, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. A species of wildcat known as the bobcat prowls the lands of Connecticut. In recent years, the bobcat has made a comeback in the state, leading researchers on a mission to better understand its population. Today, where we live, we take an in-depth look at these efforts. We talk to a biologist from the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. We also travel into the field in search of a GPS collar. It's one of the more than 100 used by researchers to track the movements of these stealthy cats. Have you spotted a bobcat? We want to hear from you, too. Join the conversation where we live right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lydia Brown, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. The bobcat is the only species of wildcat that exists in Connecticut. In recent years, it's made a comeback, leading researchers on a mission to better understand its population. It's estimated there are about 1,500 bobcats in the state right now, and biologists are using a tool to track the cat's movement, the GPS collar, which is programmed to detach after 300 days of data collection. I said, hey, did you happen to find a a collar in your backyard? And she said, yes, and I turned it into the police because I thought it was like a human ankle bracelet. Coming up, we travel into the field to track down one of these devices, but first, a wildlife biologist who knows a lot about the state's bobcats. Jason Hawley works for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, or DEEP. We met him on a gray October afternoon at Sessions Woods Wildlife Management Area in Burlington. So I want to start out with a bit of background. We know Connecticut is home to a wide range of wildlife. The bobcat, however, is the only species of wildcat that is found in this state. Yep, they're the only native felid that we have here currently in Connecticut. And this species is spread widely throughout North America. Yeah, they range all the way up and through Maine, Canada, and down through Florida, Texas, and out west. The state has witnessed uh, the extirpation or local extinction of other top predators. I'm thinking about the mountain lion as an example. Uh, Why not the bobcat? Why has this species survived in Connecticut while others have not? I think they're a little more adaptable than the larger native felid that we had here, the mountain lion. Um, They're able to change their prey. Uh, So if they're, you know, focusing on deer one time of the year and you know, in the spring, we were finding that they focus on fawns, but when then the fawns grow up, they're able to pretty easily switch their prey to rabbits, even mice. Whereas for larger predators like a mountain lion, it's a little more difficult for them to switch. So it's mostly due, the, due to their adaptability that they're able to 
kind of avoid being extirpated from Connecticut. And I do want you to talk about that adaptability a little bit more in in just a little bit. Uh, But I also wanted to note that it's not uncommon for residents to mistake a bobcat for a mountain lion. So fortunately for us, we have this bobcat specimen laying right in front of us. Could you describe this specimen for us? And is this typical of a, a bobcat that you might see here in Connecticut in our region? Yeah, this is typical. So this is a male bobcat, and he was, I believe, 32 pounds when he was hit by a car, which compared to, you know, a larger cat like a mountain lion, you're talking, you know, a female would be 100 pounds, a male would be 150 pounds. So significant difference. Significant difference. And, you know, looking at it, this is about three times the size of your average house cat? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. He's an average size for a male bobcat in Connecticut, about 10 pounds heavier than an average female. Um, I would say he has a little more spotting than you might see on an average bobcat in the state. Most of our bobcats just kind of appear brownish gray, and then you'll see some spotting underneath where there's white on the underbelly. Uh, But he definitely has a little bit more. And then you can see he has a pretty distinct bobtail where he gets his name from. The length of the tails do actually vary quite a bit from a couple inches. I think we've, we have one that was almost 10 inches long. Um, I think that's where some of the confusion comes in where people think they're seeing a mountain lion. You know, they see the longer tail. And often the way cats walk also, bobcats tend to trail a back leg. A lot of pictures that get sent to us, you know, people see that back leg trailing and they think it's a tail. Um, but that's just kind of a product of the way that cats and bobcats walk. You could see they they all have these very sharp claws. Um, they use their front paws primarily for hunting. So they use it as grasping for a bird or larger prey like a deer or even possum or woodchuck. Um, when they're hunting, they primarily use sight and sound. So you can see they have very large ears that point forward. They can move their ears about 90 degrees. Obviously, big eyes, they can hunt well at night. Um, Obviously, we can't see on this one, but they have big teeth. They're canines. They are true carnivores, so they only eat meat. So they're not like a coyote where they're also eating berries and nuts. It's strictly protein, um, carnivore diet. And then you can see it may not look here on this table, but they also are very well camouflaged. So, you know, their their whole pelage here, the way they have spotting in different colors, that's not just to look pretty for us. That's functional for them. That's so they can blend in. They tend to be in thick, kind of brushy brown habitats, and you'd be amazed how close you can get to them without even noticing they're there because of the natural camouflage that they have. There was a period in Connecticut's history when bobcats were on the brink of becoming locally extinct. Uh, and that was not too terribly long ago. Can you talk about that time in our history? What happened? So we actually had a bounty on bobcats in Connecticut up until, I believe it was 1970. Um, I don't know the exact amount, but through the 60s, I think there was like a $5 bounty um, for anyone that brought a bobcat into their local town office. You know, this was sort of just a lack of understanding of the species. You know, people thought they were dangerous and they would attack people and then pets and livestock people were concerned you know they think they're a predator they're gonna they're gonna attack their pets and livestock which 
that does happen, but it's pretty rare. So, you know, in the early, early 70s, uh, I believe 72, bobcats were given legal protection in Connecticut. So I think somebody finally realized, hey, you know, we got to stop doing this or we're going to lose bobcats, you know, in our landscape altogether. They're likely an important part of our ecosystem, which we now know they are. So that's when they were given legal protection in 1972. And it's that legal protection in conjunction with reforestation that has allowed the bobcat to make a comeback in Connecticut? Correct. Yeah. So, you know, over the last hundred years here in Connecticut, um, you know, a lot of our agriculture and farms have been abandoned and forests have been growing back at a, you know, a pretty quick rate. So we've you know, we've got huge amounts of habitat for, you know, different animals. Bears are another good example that have been kind of coming back with the forests and habitat returning. So yeah, you combine human education with uh, protection and habitat returning, and you kind of have the perfect storm for, for these animals returning to the landscape. I think there was a remnant population in northwestern Connecticut in Litchfield County, probably in the 70s. And since then, up until current time, the population has expanded across the entire state. And now we have sightings from every town in the state of Connecticut. All 169 municipalities? Yep, even Hartford, Bridgeport, Danbury, New Haven. Um, so they're, they're pretty adaptable as far as how they can tolerate urbanization and human development. That's Jason Holly, a wildlife biologist with DEEP. He's an expert on the state's bobcat population. I'm Lydia Brown, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we learn more about Holly's research on the bobcat, and we want to hear from you. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lydia Brown, in for Lucy Nelpathanchel. The bobcat is a pretty awesome sight when you can see one, especially when you consider the cat was on the brink of local extinction just decades ago. Recently, it's made a comeback in Connecticut, but when it comes to understanding the behavior of this animal, there's still a lot to learn, which is where Jason Hawley comes into the picture. A wildlife biologist with DEEP, Holly is involved in research aimed at better understanding the state's bobcat population. It's called the Connecticut Bobcat Project, and it's been ongoing since 2017. Holly recently sat down with me at Sessions Woods in Burlington to talk more about this initiative. So Jason, you are involved with a research project here in Connecticut. It's the Connecticut Bobcat Project. Can you just talk a little bit more about uh, this project? Explain it to our listeners. Yeah, so the main question of this project is how are bobcats adapting to urbanization in Connecticut? Um, you know, so, so as urbanization or housing density or human density increases, uh, what resources or what types of habitat are important to them to be able to persist 
or even thrive in these habitats? Because, you know, this is an important question because urbanization is obviously, you know, not going to go away, um, not just in Connecticut, but across the Bobcats range. And, you know, in many parts of their range, they are an apex predator. Uh, and, you know, we consider them an apex predator here in Connecticut. So, you know, a very important part of our, our ecosystem here. So, um, we've collared last year, so 2018, we collared about 50 bobcats across the state of Connecticut, and we kind of um, stratified that sample across housing densities. And we're really looking at what do they need to survive in these highly urbanized uh, landscapes, and how is it different from how they use resources in less urbanized areas. So the reason this is important. Um, you know, so we would like to know for future development. So let's say there's a certain type or structure of development that they tolerate better than other types. Do you need corridors? Do you need a certain amount of um, cover habitat within urban areas for them, you know, to persist in those areas? And also what level of urbanization are they able to tolerate? If we know what bobcats need to persist in the landscape, well, maybe we could be a little more thoughtful of how we form our development in the future to make sure that bobcats can continue to be a part of the landscape. I'm curious to learn more about how you are approaching tagging and collaring these bobcats. Uh, I understand that you have partnered with local trappers, volunteers who have been involved with this project? Yeah, so our trapping community is is super involved in a lot of the, you know, the stuff, the research we do specifically on on fur bears here in Connecticut. Um, bobcats are one of the more visible ones and, and popular ones here. Um, so trappers are, you know, they, they heard that we were going to, you know, undertake this project and it was pretty involved for us, you know, trying to collar over 100 bobcats in two years. So uh, we went to a couple of the tra- local trapping organizations and gave little presentations on, you know, what we plan to do. And just like I told you here, I kind of said, well, these are our goals. This is what we want to find out. Um, you know, and they all thought it was a great idea. You know, they're, like I said, an important species in Connecticut, and they offered to help. So um, we have many trappers across the state who volunteered using cage traps on their own time. Um, so they were, you know, official volunteers with the state. And we really wouldn't have been able to do this project without the help of, of the fur trappers in the state. I mean, over half of our collared bobcats were captured by, by vol- volunteer fur trappers. We've brought them in and, you know, kind of given them pretty specific instructions on what to do if they capture one. But then we also sent a letter out to uh, trappers that weren't volunteers that were just trapping say they were you know coyote trapping and so we we sent out a letter to all licensed trappers in the state we also put a a notice in our hunting and trapping guide so if you capture a bobcat don't release it call this number you know we gave them our i think our dep dispatch number and we also were able to collar a lot of a lot of bobcats that way that were caught as non-target captures in coyote traps and yeah that was those trappers were very helpful as well ones that weren't actually signed up as volunteers but they were very willing to go out of their way and 
you know, a lot of them sometimes had to wait three or four hours for us to show up, and they're very willing to do that. So they're a big part of the success of the project. I was just curious, uh, are there any individual bobcats that you have collared and tagged that really stood out to you that have demonstrated interesting or unexpected behaviors? Yeah, we have. You know, so we collared about 106, I believe, bobcats over the two years of the study. Um, we definitely had some interesting animals. Most of them kind of maintain what you call a home range or a territory where it's, you know, kind of a concise, very clear area of where their home range is. And then we have maybe about eight to 10% of our cats that I guess we would refer to them as transients where they really cover huge areas. And it's kind of curious as to why they're doing that. We don't really have a, a great <clears throat> theory yet, um, but we're, we're, we have seen that in a few of our cats. And then also, you know, I mentioned, you know, some of these cats we have, we had two collared in Bridgeport or right outside of Bridgeport, one collared in Hartford. And it's just amazing to see how they, they find these little corridors and move into, you know, highly, highly developed areas and stay there for a while. And then they kind of move under the cover of darkness. And it's just pretty neat to see you know, a little window into their, their life and how they're kind of how they perceive the landscape and how they move through it. I'm curious, I know there are some states in New England uh, in which a bobcat hunting season is permitted. Mm -hmm. Uh, Connecticut is not one of them. There are some who might be listening to this conversation and wondering if there is a possibility that that might happen, that might change given current population trends. At the same time, there appear to be a number of factors uh, that play a role in controlling the population, such as you mentioned this bobcat here that was hit by a vehicle. So vehicle killings, uh, population fragmentation due to human development. Uh, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I would say, you know, the reason we don't have a harvest here in Connecticut is probably just sort of left over from the 70s, you know, in the 60s when we had a bounty here. And most of the other states around us never really got rid of their harvest. So it's one of those things where we could definitely sustain a, a limited harvest here in Connecticut. We don't currently have one. I mean, we definitely have the numbers to sustain. Obviously, it would be a very regulated harvest if we had one. Um, you know, Massachusetts has a harvest, and it's just something I don't think it has much of an effect on their population. I think for years they had a, a statewide uh, quota of 100 bobcats, and they never even met it. Uh, so they just eventually removed the quota. So I, you know, I don't think harvests for bobcats are really a big deal. I don't think many people are interested in it. There's some, certainly, but I don't think it's like you'd have to you know, worry about over harvesting or anything. So it, yeah, it's something I, I'm not against it at all. You know, I, I would be okay with it as long as it was regulated correctly. This is where we live. I'm Lydia Brown, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. You're hearing from Jason Hawley, a wildlife biologist in Connecticut. He's working on a research project aimed at better understanding the state's bobcat population. We spoke to Holly at Sessions Woods in Burlington to learn about the bobcats' comeback in the state and ask what threats remain. I was wondering if you could talk about 
uh, leg hold traps. Uh, there have been calls in Connecticut to ban these traps, specifically in the wake of a recent incident in Branford, in which an opossum was injured by a leg hold trap. Do these traps pose any kind of risk to bobcats? Um, they do. It's kind of like anything when it's used correctly and responsibly. There's really, really limited, almost no you know, chance for serious injury when it's used correctly and responsibly. Um, and I would, I would venture to say that almost all, if not all, of our licensed fur trappers in the state know how to and use them correctly. And, you know, they, they care about the animals that they harvest, you know, so that's why they, they are using them correctly and responsibly. But, you know, you always have a few individuals, and I would also venture a guess that it's probably non-licensed trapper, if you can even call them trappers, poachers, I guess, that just put these things out for whatever reason. They don't want a possum in their yard. Um, who knows what the reason is. But foothold traps, one thing people don't understand is they, they think of the old traps with the, you know, the teeth on them that would clamp down. But foothold traps are a restraining device. They're not, they're not meant to hurt the animal. They're meant to restrain them. I mean, I, I regularly put my hand in foothold traps and it doesn't hurt. My seven-year-old son does it sometimes, you know, just messing around. So they're not, they're not meant to, to injure. And when used correctly, they don't. I mean, we require padding in the trap, in the traps here in Connecticut. And it's very, very rare to see any kind of injury on an animal. And it should also be said that much of what we know about certain predator species across the world is directly related to the use of foothold traps. Most of the the knowledge and data we've collected on wolves, um, coyotes, species that are really difficult to trap have come because of captures through foothold traps. So we wouldn't know, you know, even a fraction of what we, we've learned about these animals and be able to conserve them, you know, worldwide without foothold traps. Is there concern about the illegal killing of bobcats, just given the fact that their pelts are highly prized? Um, I don't, not, a, not to the point where it would affect our population. It's just so small, you know, I'm sure it happens. Um, but I mean, if someone really wanted one that bad, they can go across into New York or Massachusetts and buy a license and get one. So I don't, I don't think illegal killing is a big issue. Um, in in reality, their their fur isn't you isn't worth what it used to be worth. Our eastern bobcats, like I said, they're not very spotted, so they're not worth a ton compared to western bobcats, who are really spotted. Are worth, you know, there were years, maybe ten years ago, they were worth five hundred dollars a piece, um, but we never saw that here in the northeast, just because we don't have the spotting that they they have out there. And I'm just curious, I know the Connecticut Bobcat Project is in its second year. Uh, what is next for your research? What are your next steps? So as I said, we collared 50 cats last year, and we collared another 50 this year. These collars are all in the process of dropping off. So we've already had like 10 drop off. Um, we had one just drop off today. And, you know, the rest of them will be dropping off between now and January. And one thing we're, we're considering doing for a smaller version of a third year 
is to take about 20 of these collars, put new batteries on them like we did from going from the first year to the second year, and collar a smaller sample of cats, but rather than stratifying them across the state, um, trying to put them all in one area, in sort of an area that has a little mini gradient from low housing density to high, and look at the social structure. So how many cats are fitting or you know how many home ranges are in this area is is it affected by housing density do they have to expand their their home ranges as they move into higher housing densities so just looking at sort of the the dynamics the population dynamics and how how they're interacting overlapping uh, with each other you know across that little gradient from high to low housing density I guess I just wanted to ask as a last question, do you have any advice for listeners who might be interested in seeing a bobcat? Uh, where should they look and what should they do if they, in fact, come across one? So, you know, in, in Connecticut, it's there's not really a great place I could tell someone where to go because they really are everywhere. Um, you know, in reality, some of the best places to see them are in your backyard. You know, if you have a, if you have a bird feeder up, uh, very often they'll kind of hang in thick cover next to people's yards and wait for squirrels, possums, and raccoons to run out in the in the yard. And they'll they're kind of ambush predators, so they'll they'll ambush from from their thick cover. But yeah, with bobcats, it's sort of more of the the luck of the draw where you happen to see them um, because they they tend to stick to very very thick cover that's what we're finding from the data we're collecting they'll stay in really thick cover so if you know of areas where there's sort of early successional habitat that's a good place to see them you obviously don't want to go into that but just areas around where it's really thick you know trails coming in and out of there is where they're they're sighted most often but you just have to kind of think like a bobcat so you know, if there's a lot of squirrels around, a lot of rabbits around, there's going to be bobcats there. That's Jason Holly, a wildlife biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. I'm Lydia Brown, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we travel out of the office to learn more about efforts to track these wildcats across Connecticut. But first, it's Connecticut Public Radio's October membership campaign. You can step up to support local programs like where we live. Six-year-old Henry donated to our station recently, and he's accepted my interview request. So, Henry, first of all, thank you for donating. And how often do you listen to public radio? Probably every day. I really like listening. What's your favorite program? Wait, wait, don't tell me, because he's funny. How long do you think you'll be listening to public radio? I'm not sure, but a long time, probably. Why does public radio matter? It tells us the news. Why is the news important? Because it's telling us what's happening. What would you tell someone who's never donated before? To try and donate. If you had a million dollars, how much would you donate to public radio? Probably about half of it. What would you do if you didn't have public radio? I'm not actually sure. Me neither, Henry. Be like Henry. Give us a call at 1-800-584-2788. Go online to wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks. You're welcome. This is where we live.
From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lydia Brown, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. And today we're talking about the bobcat. It's Connecticut's only wildcat. Earlier we learned about the Connecticut Bobcat Project and how researchers are tracking these cats with GPS collars. A wide leather band with a transmitter and battery pack, more than 100 cats were fitted with these collars during the 2018-2019 season. They collect data for 300 days, and then they're programmed to fall off. We set out to see if we could find one with Melissa Ruscheck, a wildlife technician with DEEP. So we're going to be going to um, an area not far from our office here in Burlington where our female Burlington cat has dropped her collar. Um, she may have dropped it in a spot of like no service, so it's not, we're not getting GPS points for it, but one of the technicians went out and got it down to a general area of where the collar is. So that's what we're going to go now and check out to go pick it up. It's kind of messy, but it's a field truck, so it's We piled into a pickup truck, settling among wires and papers. Melissa described the equipment we were about to use to locate the GPS collar. On top of the truck, I have uh, an antenna called an Omni antenna, and it's non-directional, so I can't get a direction, but it picks up, um, it'll pick up the frequencies really well. So when I'm looking for a collar, it's um, better to have the Omni on so I'm not constantly hopping out and using the directional H antenna to find um, to find a collar. It just makes everything easier. Melissa punched an ID number into a sturdy box sitting on the truck center console. So I'm putting in her frequency. So there is some... really nice interference going on but maybe I'll shut it off for a little bit because we do have an idea of uh, where it is because the technician already semi scouted it. As we drove along rural roads Melissa explained that it only takes a day or so to retrieve a GPS collar once it's dropped from the bobcat's neck. We know when every collar should fall off uh, or detach within a day or so and just basing that on the 300 day drop off um, so we know when we caught them and when we release them and so we count 300 days and then we should be able to go find a collar. We turned onto a dead end and Melissa explained the different areas these GPS collars have detached. Sometimes she says researchers scramble through brush and thorns to retrieve them. Other times they land quite literally in a resident's backyard. In one case, a female bobcat sent researchers on a chase. I looked at her points and she had her last point that came in was a really random point that was like maybe like two miles north of the edge of her northern, the northern edge of her range. So it was kind of out of place. So I thought that was weird. And I looked at the last point before that one and it was at someone's house, like directly in the backyard. So I contacted that, contacted that person and I said, hey, did you happen to find a, a collar in your backyard? And she said, yes. And I turned it into the police because I thought it was like a human ankle bracelet. Like she must have thought someone had somehow broken out of 
Um, I don't know if it was a prison or they shouldn't have been, you know, they were on house arrest or something. But so they thought it was a an ankle bracelet and she turned it into the police. And so we actually had to go down to the police station to retrieve that collar. Um, so it does happen where, you know, they do drop them in like someone's very visible, someone's backyard and, um, and we'll have to get them uh, either from the person or like I said, from the, from the police. So I'm gonna turn this collar on. We traveled farther down the road, lined with suburban homes and landscape yards. Melissa strained to hear a signal from the dropped GPS collar. So that is not, that's just interference, what you're hearing. Until suddenly. So that's her collar. In the truck, a high-pitched beep repeated over and over from Melissa's antenna, signaling that we were close to the collar. We parked the truck and hopped from the cab, and Melissa reached in for a handheld antenna, a device we would use to pinpoint the exact location of the dropped collar. If you look as I'm spinning this antenna around, this is a directional H antenna. So as I spin it, kind of hearing it all around, I mean, it is louder in that direction. But with this gain function, if I lower it, it's going to narrow our width. And so we'll actually be able to really hone in on exactly the direction it is. So once we get it low enough, I will figure out which direction it is. And then we'll start walking. And then the closer you get, the more you drop that gain down. We navigated by foot, tromping through brush toward a game trail. Sometimes it's easier to see if if we could find maybe a game trail to walk in on. And a lot of times when you're dealing with, you know, picking up collars or going where these animals are, there's game trails around, so it might be easier to walk in. You never know what you might find on a game trail, too. Oh, here's a little snake. We reached a point at which two game trails crossed, pausing for a moment as Melissa scouted the area for signs of animal activity. And also, you know, what's really cool about cross paths is it's a a nice spot for an animal to mark. So even looking for scat or um, tracks, you know, cross paths, a lot of animals use and then will mark, hey, you know, this is where I like to come. Here's a little squirt of pee or a little scat. Scat otherwise known as poop. So, like, as I'm walking, I am still turning and, and uh, turning the antenna just to check. Um, here's some scat right here. Melissa crouched down in front of a pile of droppings, prodding with a stick as she investigated. So, look at this scat here. Um, looks like... It's probably all canid. A canid is a dog-like animal, like a coyote or a fox. But, I don't know, this is interesting. This looks uh, coyote, but this looks like it's older. And it's hard so I'm breaking it up a little bit and you can see I mean it's really interesting to to learn about what they're 
what they're eating. Um, you can see in this piece here, it looks like this is a tooth of, might be a tooth of a rabbit. I'm not convinced that this is not bobcat. Um, could be a, a big male. But I mean, look, you could see the, right there is like a, a jaw. Uncertain, we moved on, on the lookout for other signs of bobcat activity. Oh, here's some cool turkey feathers. Look at this. We reached an area of matted vegetation where turkey feathers were strewn about. Maybe this is her one of her old kills. Um, maybe she was just checking it out in a different animal. Maybe she was scavenging off something else. Or maybe this was just here for a while. We don't really know. We are super close. I just can't tell if it's right in front of us or further up on this little slope with all the thorns. So if you see it, shout it out. At this point, the game trail came to an end, turning into a dense thicket of thorns. Now it was time for us to bushwhack. So there's like a little uh, treasure hunt. <laughs> you kind of get super close and you're like, all right, like I know it's it's right here. I just got to move around so I can see it. We wove our way up a small um, hill and thorns snagged at our clothes. By the excitement in Melissa's voice, we could tell we were close. I wonder if we can get up here this way. Oh, I see it. Is that it? Yeah, I see it. Right here. I can crawl in there unless one of you guys wants to crawl in there and grab it. <laughs> I mean, I could do it. I could attempt it. Yeah. At last, hidden by branches, we could just barely make out the shape of the GPS collar. I crawled on my knees to retrieve it. About the circumference of a hamburger bun, it was surprisingly lightweight, especially given the bulky transmitter and battery pack attached to either side. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Another one down. Right here, it just pops off and um, you kind of wonder like, does it, I don't know, frighten the cat? Does it like, ooh, like what's that? Something different? Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I wish I could, we all actually have talked about it. Like we wish we could actually see what happens when that moment comes. And you know, does a cat, sometimes does it walk around with it? Does it get like, you know, does it hang on there for a little bit or is it just enough like of a jolt that it just pops off? I really, I don't know, but yeah, no, she's, she's back to her old self. No collar. Thanks to Melissa Rustcheck, a wildlife technician with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. This is where we live. I'm Lydia Brown in for Lucy Nalpathanchel Today's episode was produced by Carmen Baskoff and Katie Tolarski. Special thanks to John Dankoski. For more about the show, visit wnpr.org slash where we live. Now, it's Connecticut Public Radio's October membership campaign. If you enjoy programs like Where We Live, we hope you'll consider supporting them today. It's quick, it's easy. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. 